This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Well, good afternoon and welcome to Vancouver Consumer on this sunny Saturday. I'm Sterling Fox and in just a few minutes, Jesse Miller from Mediated Reality will join us with lots of useful information on social media and how to interact successfully while also protecting your personal privacy. In our next hour, John Carlson returns with a fresh Vancouver market real estate update. But first, here are some of the top consumer stories we're following this week and WestJet is warning Canadians about an ongoing phone scam where fraudsters are posing as WestJet representatives. Now, they describe the telephone scam as a common method used by criminals to lure people into disclosing personal information like credit card numbers and account information, same as uh, email and phishing, the same sort of strategy. Quote, it's important the public is aware that these calls are not coming from WestJet or any representative of WestJet, said the airline. Many of us have been on the receiving end of these calls and understand the irritation they're causing. So we apologize for any inconvenience to the public and encourage Canadians to report their concerns to the correct authorities in the effort to locate the source of this issue, which means that source has yet to be discovered. WestJet wants Canadians to know the company does not engage in telephone marketing. Anyone receiving calls should avoid sharing their credit card numbers and other private information with fraudsters posing as WestJet people. WestJet has lots more information on its website and uh, the public can always contact the RCMP Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre or visit their website for more info as well. Starting this spring, there will be new grocery options for shoppers in several B.C. communities as Sobeys moves their Freshco brand of markets into our province. Freshco is a discount grocery branch, branch rather launched in 2010. It will first open in B.C. in five Safeway locations that closed up last year. Two in Richmond, two in Surrey, and one Mission Safeway location will open as Freshco stores this spring. Sobe also announced the upcoming closure of several more Safeway stores that will then convert into Freshco markets over the next four to five months, closing in May for renovation of Safeway Alder Grove and Safeway Downtown Chilliwack, along with Maple Ridge, uh, closing in July and September, respectively, Ladner and Safeway Abbotsford. Sobeys adds that Freshco is known for their low price guarantee, price matching, and their liberal customer satisfaction and return policy. A record-breaking number of British Columbians received an organ transplant in 2018, the province's health authority announced this week. Just over 500 transplants were received in the province last year, compared to 479 in 2017, and decreased donor rates have increased, deceased donor rates rather, have increased by 71% compared to five years ago. Last October 24th marked the 50th anniversary of the first organ transplant here in BC. As well, a milestone number was reached last year in kidney transplants at 339 as a result of BC's focus on encouraging living kidney donations. There were also 28 heart transplants last year, 50 lung transplants, and 77 liver transplants. Currently, there are more than 1.3 million BC residents who have registered to be an organ donor. However, as of January 1st, 
669 people are still waiting for an organ transplant. 27 people died on that wait list last year. For more information on organ transplants in BC, there's lots at transplant.bc.ca. And as if a cup of Tim Hortons coffee isn't portable enough, the company is introducing a snack-sized options for those in need of a Java fix on the fly. On Wednesday, the chain announced the Tim Hortons Double Double Coffee Bar, an edible treat made from coffee beans. While it's roughly the same size as a candy bar, the Double Double Coffee Bar doesn't contain any chocolate, but rather has a silky texture with an espresso bean finish, according to a Tim Hortons press release. Timmy's claims the confectionery treat contains caffeine, no kidding, and is great for coffee and non-coffee lovers alike. To be released this fall, the coffee chain claims the Double Double Coffee Bar is the Java replacement for those always on the go that need a quick fix of caffeine. Those are some of the week's top consumer stories we're following. We'll look at a few more later in the show. But coming right up is Cyber expert and social media educator Jesse Miller from Mediated Reality with more than a few tips on being successful on social media without compromising your personal privacy in the process. And welcome back to the program, Sterling Fox with you. Uh, by the way, just as before we get to Jesse Miller and uh, check in with him on the line, uh, the, it is Groundhog Day, February 2nd, uh, and uh, we did have some conflicting predictions from the rodents who are stars for at least an hour Every year, the original Groundhog predictor down there in Pennsylvania, Punxsutawney Phil, predicts an early spring, as did Wyerton Willie there in Ontario. The dissenting opinion was held by Nova Scotia's Subanacades Sam, who says, nope, six more weeks of winter. And by the way, the accuracy of Groundhog predictions, as identified by Environment Canada, is a lowly 37%. So don't bet the farm on any of this stuff. It's a real pleasure to welcome Jesse Miller to the program. Mr. Miller is with Mediated reality.com of course jesse welcome to the show thank you for having me sterling it's great to have you with us i've heard you on cknw many times with linda and uh, many of my other colleagues this is the first chance you and i have had to talk tell us a little bit about uh, social media and the work you do in it jesse because i've sort of billed you as uh, the guy who's going to give us a lot of tips on how to interact successfully on social media while also protecting your personal privacy sounds a little easier than it sometimes is jesse well, it definitely is. And, and to be fair, a lot of my work isn't necessarily about how you engage your clients for the purpose of likes or reviews. It is more about looking at the human element of how social media allows anybody on the planet to have a bit of a soapbox to stand on sure. and to be able to take information and share it online. So my company is three-tiered, uh, primarily in education. We work with youth, um, uh, post-secondary, and at the end of the day, corporate education to really kind of focus on how we as human beings are changing using these mobile and, and social technologies that we have. Um, the second tier would look at uh, best practices and developing policies and really kind of digging into the human element of any business place to understand how personal uh, communication tools 
now have changed the expectations of things like privacy management and sure. data retention. And then that, when it comes down to it, I try, uh, for the third part, just helping out groups. So I have a lot of nonprofit groups that reach out. They have questions about how to keep those who are vulnerable in their care uh, or those who they're advocating for more aware of some of the social media tools that can help move them forward or also hold them back. Um, so uh, so within that, uh, there is a lot of education that falls into my, uh, into my lap, but I also end up on the radio quite often talking about what people do with the technology when it is newsworthy. Exactly. And of course, we've seen so many examples, even just in the last six months, Jesse, of individuals who uh, who are grownups now, well into their lifespan and their careers, who did something or posted something while they were in university 20, 30 or more years ago, and suddenly are suffering incredible repercussions from what in many cases they they sort of a lot of us would have written off as a, a stupid uh, college kid prank and just forget about it and now of course it's a uh, it's a tremendous crime so how 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 do you educate people on being careful for crying out loud well to be fair in the first 15 years of our our current uh, facebook uh, lives um, a lot of the uh, a lot of the education approach was about stranger danger, getting people more aware of predatory behavior seen online, and really guiding that technology conversation towards kids. Right. And so now what we're seeing is we've had 15 years of Facebook. We've now moved into more mobile technologies. And people are using aspects of their traditional lives to not only facilitate online communications, but also the securities that sometimes we rely on when it comes to our finances. So a simple conversation like, are you changing your password for your logged on information? Are you changing your bank code often? Some people will turn around and say, I don't have the time for that. I really don't have the brain power for that. But if somebody can go onto your Facebook account and learn about your anniversary dates, uh, the day that your children were born, or the color of your first car, I mean, these are always the primary questions that are kind of given by financial institutions. Right. So we have these multiple tiers of we want people to be more aware of maybe the uh, social shaming of the Internet, the pile on, you made that mistake, and now everybody wants to call for your job. Yep. And then we have the other side where it is easier today to steal from you online than it ever would be to go up and grab a bag from you. Yes. And if we get people to pay a bit more attention about how they are social sharing and maybe some of the vulnerabilities that might be out there or the ones that are coming in the future, that's where we might mitigate some of these safety conversations in the next 10 years. All right, Jesse, what was the year? Have you, if you must, uh, somewhere in your, in your vast uh, data uh, compilation, have a year, or even a month circled, that all this changed. All of a sudden, as of 2004 or 1998 or whatever, social media suddenly became a force in our lives. What was that year? I would say in Canada, we would start seeing that around 2010, 2011. And okay. That's where a lot of our apps became mobile friendly in the sense of how we were taking our static social media from our computers at home to our everyday lives. And then we saw the cost of mobile technology drop drastically, where now we saw a large amount of Canadians using smartphones. So that's where we started seeing things from the workplace end up on the internet. That's where we saw some of the uh, monotonous parts of our lives end up as a more frequent piece of our everyday sharing, the food pictures, the idea of some of the more perilous apps that parents should be more aware of. That really kind of kicked in around 2012. But at the very turn of the decade that we're currently in, that's where we started seeing more and more of these issues that became headline news. All right. Now, does it surprise you that in the in, the, in roughly that eight or nine year span, you were talking about Facebook and then these other more mobile platforms? Does it surprise you even a tiny bit that the vast 
majority of people on Facebook these days are adults. The kids have moved on. No, it doesn't surprise in my work, not a surprise at all, only because adults have gotten very comfortable in the economics of social sharing. Uh, we don't have the cost of developing film. We have the on-demand uh, connection to friends and family from around the world. True. And you're also seeing a huge generation that very much were comfortable with Facebook at that 2010-2011 point, um, now using these tools in multifaceted ways. So they'll have Facebook to stay in touch with friends and family. Mm-hmm. They'll use Instagram for maybe their businesses. They'll use mobile communication tools like WhatsApp or Messenger or Facebook Messenger to stay in touch with all of those individuals, whether it be professional or personal. Um, And for the kids, we now are actually, I would say, a grade nine student, a grade 10 student. This is the first generation of students who were born into a world where social media exists. And it's very normal for them. I mean, they grew up with devices pointed at them for the purpose of documenting their lives. And so the kids will find where they're comfortable. Facebook is for adults in that sense of uh, the old people are there. And I mean, it's not a a maligning comment, but it's what kids will tell you. Oh, sure. Um, and in that, there's always going to be the next thing. I mean, right now, uh, TikTok is an app that's really popular with middle school kids. And when I talk to parents about it, they have no idea how to reference it, except for maybe that their kids showed them a quick video on there. So each cycle that we see within a generation will have some form of social media relevance. It is actually getting to a point of micro-generations where kids are using things in different ways than their parents, but it's all very similar behavior. And how important do you, how much importance do you place, Jesse, the cybersecurity? expert on parents at least knowing what the heck a TikTok is and 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 more than just well it's you know it's a website uh, knowing a little bit more than that well, I'll scale back from the expert side because people who work in cybersecurity, they know a lot more about the networks and, and the uh, infrastructure piece. For me, I look at the human behaviors. So what kids need to understand and then be able to take back to their parents is that if you are using something that you think is somewhat benign, it's not a big deal, it is about how you're telling your story to the Internet. Right. And so for parents... The key point for safety is always about the fear of their child being targeted, uh, being drawn away from the home, or the exploitive uh, uh, aspects of photographs or or video. Mm -hmm. And what parents forget to recognize is that you've been putting your children on the Internet for the better part of their lives. And so all these puzzle pieces of information now become a hurdle for them in their next steps. So now you have a person who's turned 18. uh, They haven't thought about applying for a credit card or a student loan. They go in at 19 or 20 to apply for their first financial uh, piece of credit. And they'll find that potentially somebody's already used their information to commit credit card fraud because the puzzle pieces of identifying an individual are very easy to put together. And if you have something like a date of birth or you have something like uh, a photograph that gives you a concept of where they grew up or or their family home, um, people who are targeting individuals within cybercrimes now have not only troves and troves of data, but little pieces of information that might never have ever been spoken of beforehand available to them online that they can use to convince a bank that they're that person compared to the person who just turned 19 years old. Wow. And if you are that person uh, approaching the big banking industry for your first piece of plastic and discover that somebody's already been there impersonating you, what recourse do you have? Well, I think anybody who's listening right now who's had an experience calling a credit monitoring company or arguing with their bank has probably felt it to be an arduous process. No kidding. Uh, 
you add not only a layer of security, which is needed in the sense that somebody is going to attempt to take out another loan, they contact you, they have to verify, you have to potentially swear at a notary that this is who you are. Um, but within that, at the same time, we are seeing individuals online where it's already five, six, $7,000 that they're having to argue. Um, and some banks just kind of shrug it off. They write it off and they say, well, we should have done our due diligence to make sure. Uh, but when it comes down to individuals who already have established credit, um, they're looking at their online bill and they're not really recognizing maybe the purchasing that they're doing online. So I'm always really kind of focusing on the individuals and making sure they're aware that if you are doing a lot of things online that involve your financial information, you've got to be aware of how those puzzle pieces can be put together. And right now the onus is on parents as their children are aging from 10 to 18 to really slow down on some of that information sharing to help your child the next step of their life. Do you, uh, you uh, I'm just looking at your website, uh, mediatedreality.com, Jesse, and in the description of, of the consulting activities that you do and you talk about your clients uh, ranging from school districts, law enforcement agencies, government agencies, health authorities, branches of professional licensing and regulation and private businesses who represent a variety of high profile clients. All of these involve a large numbers of, of, of people. So these are agencies that you, you deal with who in turn deal with huge numbers of people. What, what common denominator do all of these agencies clients have for you when it comes to mistakes, common mistakes most of us make without even thinking about it? I would say it's the convenience of of sharing. So what we're seeing in a lot of those spaces is the ability for a person to take a phone out take a photograph of something in their workplace, their education spaces, um, and put it online without very much a negative want to shame or to malign. They're usually falling into a space where they want to tell their network about whatever's happening in their day. Right. So an example being, uh, we've seen a number of people in the healthcare industry where their day has gone long. They're looking at patient charts. They take a photograph of the stack of charts with a couple pages open. They post it on social media for their friends to see, and they're complaining about the amount of work they have. But now you have a Privacy Act violation. Now you have a patient's information online where even if it's not 100% identifiable, right. there are bits and pieces that could be put together based on a patient who was in a hospital, uh, a patient reviewing something online and knowing that that was pertinent to their case. Uh, one very high-profile event that came out of uh, a hospital a couple of years ago where was a nurse had made some commentary about a patient who had come into the hospital. They very much went to detail without highlighting the patient's name. But once it went viral and people were talking about it, the hospital then got a complaint from the patient saying, I think this is my healthcare story. And now everybody's talking about it because your employee thought it was important to put this on the internet uh-huh. without thinking about whether or not they should be in the first place. Mm-hmm. So in that, when we think about anything from a sensitive workplace involving government uh, an education place where teachers are responsible for the vulnerable sector and their private information, or when it comes down to it, any of us going into a hospital, there's a lot of phones, a lot of cameras, and a lot of networks where people can take whatever's happening, put it on the internet, and it can become a viral conversation tomorrow. Let's just start on the phones, Jesse. I've got a lot of questions for you. I want to talk about screen time and esports, and and I got to tell you, as I went, went into the control room uh, during the news break on one of Andrew's many screens that he has in front of him, Andrew, of course, is our control board operator is twitch.tv and he's watching esports so i'll get into that in a little bit but first let's go to the phones and check in with robert in surrey who's been waiting a while and thank you for that robert good afternoon hi i'm uh, i'm in the cannabis industry and uh i don't do social media i don't do facebook twitter 
But I got a, a, a LinkedIn thing sent to me, and I opened it up, and now I'm part of LinkedIn, and now they're asking me to put my picture and reach out, and I was going to reach out. And then I, I, the thing is, I work for an American company with equipment supplied to the cannabis company, and I work in Canada. And because the American thing, i got to be really careful. Sure. I, 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 I decided not to touch out with LinkedIn, but I mean, I'm really limiting my business contacts and my ability. How do you navigate this? What do you do? How do you decide which is, you know, the business thing over? Because if I can't go to the States, I'll lose my, my ability to deal with the American company. That's a huge part of my platform. Of course. Uh, any recommendations or thoughts on this one, Jesse? Well, first and foremost, the uh, LinkedIn uh, uh, notification usually comes when you have a colleague who has your email. They've signed up for LinkedIn, and what they've allowed LinkedIn to do is look at your, their contact list. And so what happens is you get an email notification that your colleague is there, you click on it, and all, the, the login procedure almost becomes something so simple that you don't really uh, know what's happening until you've actually kind of put a password in because you you kind of take any steps to join. Um, what I'm concerned about with these uh, ideas of our industries and where legalization exists, we right now are talking to kids about being very careful about how to put the content that they're participating in in their personal lives on social media where the laws are different in different countries. Yes. Um, and in that, if you are in an industry where it is legal in Canada and you may feel scrutinized going to a different country based on that uh, legalization or association to the cannabis industry, you've got to be very careful not only how you share your own personal use, but anything that you're doing that's reaping a revenue benefit to your business. So when you do travel as a business person or you travel as an individual, any association to cannabis uh, can be reviewed at the border, and you have to be very careful based on your miscibility. So what can Robert do, Jesse? Can you unjoin LinkedIn? Is that uh, the easiest way? Can you just disconnect? You can disconnect. And to be fair, though, if you are involved in the industry, I mean, you shouldn't really be too worried about it at the end of the day because you already have enough of a paper trail that would associate you. Um, it is about something that you want forward facing. So you can remove your account. You can delete it. But like any of these websites, uh, once the information is there, it has already happened. Um, so all you have to do is go to the LinkedIn homepage, log on, go to the help, and then work his way backwards on how to remove his account. Interesting stuff. And Robert, I hope that works for you. Uh, let's go to Burnaby next. Susan, good afternoon. Good morning. Thanks for, good afternoon. Thanks for taking my call. Good to have you with us. What's up? Thank you. Um, so I'm wondering in the future, uh, regarding Facebook and parents putting all the baby pictures and children pictures on for everybody to see. Yeah. Could a child sue a parent later on because they have not given permission for their pictures to be posted? Well, well, Jesse's not a lawyer, but it's a really provocative question. What do you think, Mr. Miller? Well, well, two points. One, uh, in the United States, there is case law. Uh, there was an individual who was uh, uh, of the age of 19, uh, was not very happy that a lot of their identifiers were shared online by the parents. And uh, there was a court case, and the uh, the court ruled in favor of the child, and uh, there was restitution ordered from the parents to the child. Um, in Canada, I, I can't mention uh, in, in any way, shape, or form what that would look like because it's not my field of expertise. But we have had a couple of incidents in British Columbia in the past year, year and a half, where when we look at some of the cyberbullying issues, we've had children who unfortunately in middle school and in high school have been targeted by the people who are using that information 
Um, and those people are actually sourcing some of the older photos from parent social media accounts. And mm-hmm. so when we think about how uh, there might be some retribution, we most likely won't see something like that in Canada. But uh, definitely United States, where we hear about people being sued for everything, there will be some developments there most likely. Any follow-up, Susan? Thank you. No, that's that's perfect. Well, actually, I was curious about what pictures or what information, uh, you know, that case that, that the child won. Interesting. Uh, and what was, uh, thank you for the call, Susan, by the way. And Jesse, what was the restitution? This is an American case. Were the parents who had published all of these photos with, um, how do you get permission from a baby to put his or her picture on Facebook? I mean, well, really? Anyway, the well, kid's 19, he sues his parents, and the judge said pay restitution. Did they actually have to fork over some dough? They, they did, and I think it was it was in a couple hundred thousand dollar range. Wow! Uh, as far as in the case as I, as I can remember. Uh, but that being said, one of the things that we're working with kids on right now is digital consent—the idea of asking for permission before you take photographs. And in that, we are seeing a generation of youth who really haven't been taught what it means to be uh, asked for permission to have their image captured and shared online. Right. And that goes right to the, the, the value of parenting and how we want to share our children. And to be fair, I mean, most parents, once they hear that there's a photograph online that somebody has used in a negative way, they want to take all of that back as fast as they can. And the hard part here is we are at a point where we document our loved ones, we put it online for people to see, and we don't really think about those 10, 15, 20, 30 years in the future of what that might look like. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm so happy in, in some, so many ways on Facebook that a lot of my family lives in Ontario and I have nieces and nephews who are very small people and uh, without pictures, uh, when I go back to Ontario as I did a couple of weeks ago, I wouldn't know who these people were unless I had seen a recent picture of them and could have put a name to a face. It's very helpful that way, but you don't think about, and mom in this particular case is uh, adores her children and there's... there's Fresh photos every day, which I enjoy. I'm the uncle. But I'm mom's real keen. And boy, oh boy, there's a ton of material on, on the Internet. What's her risk, Jesse? Well, I, I would say that you have the traditional predatory risk. Somebody is uh, downloading the pictures of your children. It is about your network security, though, and how many privacy settings you have. But about, I would say in about 2015, 2016, I, I did a spot on Global where we mentioned that parents are oversharing, and we, we actually have a terminology about sharenting. And there were over 3 million photographs of children sitting on the, on the potty or in the bathtub. Oh, my. Um, those are, that's a, that's a, a treasure trove to an individual who's looking for that kind of photograph. But when it comes down to the idea of individuals and risk, it is about the things that you can identify. And so if I go back to that financial piece, when they ask you the city you were born in, the name of the high school you went to, mm-hmm. all of those will have to change because there is so much prominent information online about individuals based on how parents are sharing information. And so in that, when you put it together with how the individual shares information as they grow, there is this data uh, availability. And that's where some of those risks are. We're going to have to see the industry change. But uh, I always bring it to an economic point with parents. If you're not going to spend a dollar a day to use social media, if you wouldn't spend 10 cents for every photograph you took of the food in front of you, um, bring it down to that idea of a roll of film. And we used to value the pictures we took because there wasn't the immediate gratification. Sure. Um, now bring it to the point of the value of your child's information and their next steps online. Uh, at what point is social sharing more valuable than the risks to safety for your kid? 
Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of just random topics. As a 604-280-9898, by the way, if you want to jump in. Screen time, Jesse Miller. Uh, this is uh, this is a hotly debated topic. I saw a piece just a, a day or two at the most ago in which uh, the, uh, the, the headline form of the story uh, said something to the effect that the average screen time for a typical North American child is in excess of three hours a day. The recommended screen time for a North American kid should be about an hour a day. Do these numbers resonate with you at all? Uh, in, in, in no way, shape, or form are those realistic. Uh, I would say that we, we as adults, we go to work, we spend time in front of screens, we get home, we're looking at our phones, we're watching something on television, Netflix, whatever it be. Um, we can average anywhere between six and a half to seven hours of screen time in a collective day okay. based on how we're structuring our work versus pleasure. Um, but in that, at the same time, a really interesting study came out of Oxford University recently where they identified that some of these headlines we see about this is the worst thing you're ever doing for your child yeah. or the uh, detriments. Um, most of the data we have is cherry-picked, and we really need another generation to compare and contrast. And so in that, some of the concerns that we see with screens are sometimes about social participations. But that being said, you go to a cafe, you see a toddler who's on an iPad or a phone, parents or adults in the mix are talking, that child is learning how to be pacified, not necessarily learning how to be patient or participate in that True. space. So pro-social screen time is what you're looking for. Any kind of positive screen time where you're interacting, there's a positive in the sense of engaging with friends and family, you're doing something online that's helping you in your career, you're allowing your career to be in a, a multi-zone place in the sense that you don't have to be at a desk, you can do emails on the go, mm-hmm. um, you can access things. Those are the positives we're looking for, but the reality within it is that there are aspects of how we use screens that could be addressed now. So our posture, how much time we spend staring at one screen, how we use our phones in the places of intimacy like our homes, our couches, uh, watching a a movie with our family, and then you as the adult are opting not to watch the movie because you just want to stare at your phone. Those are the pieces where the family dynamic and the participation within relationships really do benefit from conversation, not so much headlines. It's interesting you were talking about the pacifying notion because a couple of generations ago you wanted to do you wanted to get some work done around the house uh, you plunked the kid down in front of sesame street and you bought yourself an hour now you don't have to bother with that you just give them a a, a device and a, you, you, they're they're happy and you can do whatever you want and so the the pacification methods have uh, i don't know whether improved is the right word jesse but they've sure changed they're definitely they're definitely more multifaceted to be fair, though, I mean, if you had a kid who watched an hour of Sesame Street, the kid was coming away with good educational value and entertainment. Right. Um, what I see right now as a problem is that we see a lot of parents who are content with not really understanding what their child's doing on that device, but also not choosing to participate as well. And, and initial data of kids who are using technologies with that parent participation, with those learning outcomes, those kids are testing very well in the next coming years of their academics. The kids were just handed a device for the purpose of just watching the yeah, same thing entertain yourself. Yeah, yeah, it's not it's not of good value. Interesting stuff. Uh, let's talk about esports for a little bit here. Andrew's uh, on Twitch.tv. He's he's into one one game of, or, or or another. This esports thing. We had that big competition at Rogers Arena this past summer with hundreds of thousands of dollars in prizes and a full house for days. This is huge stuff, Jesse. 
Oh, this is absolutely huge. And the thing is, you say hundreds of thousands of dollars. The winning team from the event in this past August in Rogers Arena walked away with about $11.3 million in earnings. Um, and there were 18 teams in the event where they all walked away with cash prizes. Wow. So that, that should give some perspective of how much money is involved. And for the listeners who are saying, why would anybody go and pay money to watch a, a, a person playing video games? The majority of the events in Rogers Arena, you're watching millionaires playing games. Uh, this is this is a That's different true. version of it. That's right? right. There's hockey and then there's esports, and they're all millionaires and they're all playing games. <laughs> and and then Aquilini Entertainment, uh, the family that owns the Canucks, yeah. they have now recently purchased an esports team. They start their first match, I think, mid February here. They're playing against Shanghai, which is, shows you the growth of the league as well in right. of these cities. Um, but interestingly enough, academically, we're starting to see a huge growth of esports scholarships in, in, in Canadian schools. Um, we have what's called the, uh, the Center for uh, uh, Media, Digital Media in Vancouver, which is Emily Carr, SFU, UBC, BCIT. They run not only uh, programs for, for high school kids, but their graduates are moving into the video game tech industry, which is a big part of our British Columbia uh, uh, next step in the 21st century. Um, and then also you're starting to see traditional companies adapting. Uh, right across the street from that campus is uh, Finning Caterpillar Tractor. Yes, yeah. That's, co- that's a company that recognizes that a lot of these controllers uh, that kids are using playing video games fit into their industry as technology grows. Interesting stuff. Uh, Only a minute left, which is unfair to you, but I'd like a comment on cyberbullying for the many parents and grandpas and uncles and aunts listening. You know, it's fair. And in 2010, 2012, we had a lot of issues in British Columbia about cyberbullying, and we had a lot of prominent uh, stories and stories that we should not forget. Um, What we have now is a group of kids who are emerging away from some of those events. And even though we still have cyberbullying incidents, we have a lot of young people who know that they have resources to go and talk to individuals in their school. Good. They can report online. Safer Schools Together, which is a, a fantastic group in British Columbia. There's a reporting tool associated to their program where kids in schools can report anonymously online. So within all of those components, we still have incidents. We're not ever going to get rid of cyberbullying. But when it comes down to it, uh, I can't in good faith stand in front of kids and say, be careful what you do on the Internet. You're not going to achieve things because there's a lot going on in politics that shows you can say anything online and people are going to believe it. But the reality within that is that kids online, if they are dealing with issues around people attacking them, harassing them, there are a lot more uh, tools and literacies that go to people like counselors, police who understand what's happening as opposed to why don't you just shut off the internet it'll stop that's not the reality of the argument anymore those educators those resources now are more empowered jesse miller uh, always a pleasure sir and a real pleasure for me to have an opportunity for the first time always a pleasure to listen to you and i've done that many times but a real treat to have you on the program today mediatedreality.com friends that's uh, mr miller's website all one word mediatedreality.com jesse miller we must do this again thanks so much Thank you. And once again, our thanks to Jesse Miller from Mediated Reality for a very informative visit. And thanks for your calls, too. Next hour, John Carlson returns with more on Metro Vancouver real estate. Time now for Duly Noted. And this time around, our producer, Ben Dooley, has a look at a rent-to-own housing project in Port Moody. Thanks, Sterling. For 30 families in Port Moody, it will be like winning the lottery. Starting next month, a unique path to home ownership will be launched that partially removes the biggest obstacle, a down payment. A new condo development near Rocky Point Park is being marketed to buyers with a unique twist. 
just under 10% of the 358 units will be considered rent-to-own. People will pay a fixed rent for two years, and all of that money will be converted into equity to put towards a down payment. The owner, Kush Panic, heard from a local firefighter about the lack of affordable places to buy in Port Mooney. It was a conversation he took to heart, creating the rent-to-own scheme on the spot. The program has the support of the local city council, and it was refined to offer these homes to locals. In order to qualify, People need to live or work in Port Moody, and this purchase must be their first home. The applications have dwarfed even Mr. Panic's wildest expectations. And I think it goes to show the great need to try to solve this housing challenge. The Richmond-based developer is confident small solutions like this can add up to make home ownership easier and more affordable for young people. I'm Ben Dooley, and that's Dooley Noted. Thanks, Ben. Time for a couple more consumer quickies before the news. Industry consultants say car sales dropped 7.3% in January compared to a year earlier as a downward Canadian sales trend continued. Light vehicle sales for January came in almost 10,000 fewer cars compared with the first month of last year. Passenger car sales continued a pronounced decline 13 almost 14 percent year-over-year drop light truck sales including pickups minivans and suvs down almost five percent from last year ford motor company was the top seller with just over sixteen thousand units after it saw only a two percent decline from last year while fiat chrysler slipped from first place to third after a 20 percent drop compared with january of 2017 toyota in fourth place actually saw sales climb almost 15%. General Motors, which has been facing union criticism for its plans to shut down the Oshawa, Ontario assembly plant, saw an almost 15% decline from last year to end up in second place. TransLink has activated its snow plan ahead of the winter flurries forecasted for Vancouver this weekend. TransLink says it's planning ahead to ensure that transit service stays as reliable as possible. Extra staff have been called in to assist customers and coordinate service. Transit exchanges have been salted and sanded. Municipalities have been contracted to coordinate snow clearing. Trucks are on standby to help spread anti-icing solutions to trolley wires. And some trolley buses have even been equipped with brass cutters to help slice through the ice if those wires get frozen. Naturally, customers are asked to address for the elements, to expect occasional delays, and stay tuned to TransLink's Twitter account for update information And over the course of next week, beginning tonight, temperatures are expected to drop below zero with a good chance for snow and flurries as early as tomorrow. That is Vancouver Consumer for our first hour this Saturday afternoon. A quick reminder here, you can subscribe and download our podcast for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sterling Fox. Thanks to Ben Dooley and Andrew Ferreira for the production details. And we're back after the news to 3 o'clock with John Carlson from 1% Realty. Stay tuned. This is Vancouver Consumer. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.